Good evening again. We're going to read one more passage before we turn to the teaching of God's Word tonight. If you'll go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we'll read that together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We read there, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this chance to gather. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, for all of who he is and for all of the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. We ask tonight that your spirit would work among us, that to those who believe Christ would be precious and that he would be lifted up in our sight, in our estimation. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight, um, we're going to be looking at these three verses. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to set a little bit of the context where obviously we're jumping in to chapter 12, so we're fairly far into this letter. So I'm just going to set the context, what the author is trying to do, and then we're going to say what aspect we're looking at tonight. And then we're going to consider the priestly work of Jesus in two ways, in his priestly work as a sacrifice and as his priestly work as an intercessor. So that's what we're going to, those are kind of the, the steps that we're heading in tonight. Specifically, so in the book of Hebrews, the readers are men and women who have come from Judaism to put their faith in Jesus Christ. But because of persecution, they are tempted to turn away from Jesus and to go back to this old covenant way of living. And the author has been writing to them, encouraging them not to do that, but to continue to run this race with endurance. You see that here in the passage. And he has been doing that primarily by showing how much greater how much better Jesus is and the work that he has accomplished. So he has talked about a better covenant, better promises, a better hope, a better sacrifice, a better, um, a better priesthood, all these things that we have in Jesus. And so uh, he's been expounding on this, this difference then between what was in the old covenant and what is made new in the new covenant through Jesus. In chapter 11, he gets to this place where he talks about these men and women of God through history who have been uh, faithful to God. They've seen God's faithfulness. They've walked by his grace. And it is to show his readers the real possibility that they can live by faith even under hostility from the world. Then he turns here in chapter 12 and kind of culminates, comes to a head from the chapter 11, to point them ultimately to Christ who endured hostility from sinners. So his main point in this passage is here, to run with endurance. That's what he's trying to get his readers to do. Don't turn from Jesus, continue to run in him. Don't be weary. Now, 
the way that he encourages them to do that is this, looking to Jesus. So the way in which they're going to run with endurance is by looking to Jesus. Then he repeats that same type of thing right in verse 3. First he says, consider him. Why? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he's saying this, this same thing here. So while he is encouraging his readers to continue to run the race, he is pointing out that the way that the only way that they're going to be able to do that is by fixing their gaze on Jesus Christ. And that is the aspect I want to focus on tonight, looking to Jesus and considering him. Uh, I believe that if we are going to run the Christian life, then we are going to need to look to him not just as an example, but also saying what work has he accomplished on our behalf so that we know what we have been equipped with, what, uh, what he's done to put aside the spiritual forces of darkness in this world, what he's done for us. My goal in prayer is that each of us, individually and then corporately as a body, we would be stirred up to seek and to know Jesus Christ and therefore to, to live more faithfully in this world for him. So in order to encourage us on that, I'm going to look at those two works of, of Jesus that I was saying, his sacrifice and his intercession, not because they're necessarily the, the biggest things to look at, because I want to set forth an example of what it means to look to Jesus or to consider him. These words, looking to Jesus, it's a verb that means to turn away from looking at one thing and to look toward another thing. He's telling them right beforehand, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. So he's saying, instead of looking to your persecution, instead of looking to all the weights, the comforts, and the allures of the world, instead of looking to that, turn from those things and look to Jesus Christ. He says, consider him. The verb for consider, it means to, to give attention to something or to contemplate it. So what I want us to do is to look to Jesus, focus our attention there, think about who he is and what he's done, how we benefit from the work that he has done for us, and how we're to live in light of that. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to do that by looking at those two parts, considering Jesus and his priestly work of sacrifice and considering him in his priestly work of intercession. So look again at the first couple of verses of chapter 12. When we think about Jesus as a sacrifice, when we think about Good Friday, uh, one of the first things that rightly come to mind is what he endured on the cross. So this is where the writer talks about the cross and despising the shame, and he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And that's good and right, because what Jesus experienced through the, the beating, through the scourging, through the, the shame and dishonor and the mocking of the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders and the crowds, through the crown of thorns and through the, the nails and being lifted up on the cross and death, those things are important. They were a terrible thing. But that is not all that there is happening on Good Friday. There's not just a physical element to the cross, but there's also a spiritual element to the cross. And in some senses, because it's unseen, it's actually, there's something more important going on there. So I think that what's really going on behind the scenes is that Jesus is taking our sin on himself and bearing God's wrath. That's something we hear quite frequently, but I think it's something that we need to, again, look to 
Not be distracted by other things, but look to Jesus and consider, contemplate, think about what that means. Uh, Paul Washer, in his book, Discovering the Glorious Gospel, I think summarizes it really well. He says, the cross of Christ brings to mind the insults and physical pain he suffered. To die on a cross was the worst of all humiliations and tortures. Nevertheless, the physical pain and shame heaped upon Christ by men were not the most important aspects of the cross. We are saved not merely because men beat him with whips and nailed him to a cross. We are saved because he bore our sin and was crushed under God's judgment. That's why we read in places like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." In Isaiah 53, verse 6, Isaiah prophesying of the work that Christ would do says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the reasons why the cross was such deep agony for Jesus was because he took our sin on himself. Think about that. Jesus is the sinless one. He is God in the flesh who abhors what is evil, tempted in every way like we are, yes, but without sin. He's the Holy One of Israel. And all of a sudden to step on the cross and to bear our sin, all of it. I can't even begin to imagine what that feels like. Bearing our sin. But why? Why did he do that? It is for the purpose of being able to stand in the place of sinners and to take the punishment for that sin. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, uh, we read about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and arrest, and he prays there. And it says, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Which leads to a question. What is this cup that Jesus is praying about. Let this cup pass from me. Whatever it is, it is causing him deep anguish as he looks ahead to what's coming. And I think it's much more than the Roman soldiers and scourging him and the cross. Again, those things are important and those are terrible, but it's much more than that. And to understand it, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Places like Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 and 16 that tell us, thus the Lord... The God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending against them. We see this image of a cup of God's wrath, his anger against the sin of the nations, multiple places. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8, or Isaiah 51, 17 through 23, Habakkuk 2, 15 through 17, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, chapter 16, this is a, a repeated image of God's anger with the sin of the nations, the sins of individuals. That's what Jesus is referring to. Let this cup pass from me. And so, the cup is, is the, the God's anger against sin, and Jesus is voluntarily, though he is sinless himself, he is voluntarily stepping into our place 
and taking our sin and bearing God's judgment for that sin. And whenever he goes on the cross and he says, it is finished, in essence, what he's saying, that cup has been turned over and there's not a single drop left of God's wrath against us, those who are in Christ. It is finished. God's justice and righteousness has been completely satisfied by his work. Now, kids, I know as we talk about God's wrath in this, this cup, that can be a little bit, what, what are we even talking about here? Uh, maybe just a brief story might help with that. So my mother grew up in rural Kentucky, and like many parents, my grandparents had a simple rule in the house, which was don't throw balls in the house, right? It's a pretty simple rule. But one day my mom, coming in from playing outside, uh, she needed to go wash up and get cleaned up for whatever was next and thought, you know, instead of walking across the room and putting the ball down where it's supposed to be, it'd be a lot easier. It'd save me some time if I just tossed it across the room and then I can go on my way. So you can start to guess what happens. So she tosses the ball across the room, makes it about halfway across whenever it collides with the chandelier. There's a, a large crash as it breaks into pieces, falls to the ground, another crash, and my mom is standing there still just staring at this mess. My grandmother comes in, looks, of course, so she's the only person there. There's a baseball on the floor. There's a broken pieces of the chandelier. And my grandmother is, becomes absolutely upset, just so angry that she doesn't even want to discipline her because she's, she knows that her emotions are, are too much. So she calls my grandfather in. And she says, you discipline her. I can't do that right now. So my grandpa takes my mom, takes a wooden spoon for a paddling, and goes to the bathroom and closes the door. Knowing full well that my grandmother is listening outside, he looks at my mother, and he holds out his hand, and he takes the spoon, and he begins to hit his own hand with the spoon repeatedly. And it's hard enough that it can be easily heard by my grandmother outside the bathroom. And my mom, looking at him, just begins to, to cry, just begins to weep. And between the, the sound of the smacking of my grandpa's hand and my mom's crying, it must have been pretty convincing because my grandmother thought it was all going according to plan. <laughs> Everything was getting straightened out in there. Um, but that was, that's just a small picture of this, right? My mother had broken the rules and really justly deserved to be punished for it. But my grandpa, because of his kindness towards her, took that punishment on himself. He harmed himself for her so that she wouldn't have to be. That is what Jesus does. We have broken God's rules, God's laws, and we rightly deserve his judgment. So instead, Jesus comes, stands in our place, takes our sin and our punishment. He is harmed he is crushed for our sin so that you and I don't have to be. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, does this not stir you up to want to consider Jesus and the work that he's done to praise him? Consider that because of the death of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. None. Instead, we now stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us, 2 Corinthians 5 21, 
Does that not convict you of your sin? That the smallest of your sins merits the wrath of God, that it took the life of the Son of God to pay for it. Does that not bring you joy and reverence to know that the love and grace of God is so great that He is willing to pay that price for you? Would you consider the work of Christ? Let's also consider Jesus' priestly work of intercession. In verse 2, we read there that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's he doing there? What's Jesus doing at the right hand of the throne of God? Well, earlier in the, in the letter, he was writing in chapter 7, and he talks about how Jesus, um, as a high priest, is able to save uh, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, the work of the high priest in the Old Testament, like on the Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus 16, it was not finished whenever they made sacrifice. So when they killed the bull, when they killed the goat at the altar, their work was not done. They still took the blood and they went into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, to bring that blood as an atonement for the sin of the people. So in verse 15 it says, He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, sprinkling it over the mercy seat. So Christ, when he dies on the cross, cross, he is acting as a high priest making sacrifice for our sins. And then whenever he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he is also acting as a high priest to make intercession for us. This is why earlier in chapter 9, the writer has been arguing for this type of a thing. He says, we're going to go to verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. That's a reference to the Day of Atonement. For then he would have to have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So now Christ's presence at the right hand of God is as an intercessor and as an advocate for you and me, for his people. The theologian Charles Hodge, I think, does a good job summarizing this whenever he says, Christ presents himself before God as our representative. His perfect manhood, his official character, and his finished work plead for us before the throne of God. All that the Son of God is incarnate is, and all that he, has done, he, all that he did on earth, he is and did for us so that God can regard us with all the favor which is due to him. His presence, therefore, is a perpetual and prevailing intercession with God in behalf of his people and secures for them all the benefits of his redemption. That last phrase, man, you just got to sit and think about that one. This is amazing, the work of Christ that he has done for us. So let's consider the work of Christ. Because of Christ's sacrifice and intercession, we have an advocate in the very presence of God. He is a defense for us against the accusations of our sin against our enemy, Satan. 
And because of him, we have assurance that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to bring us back into fellowship with the Father. 1 John 1, verse 7 through 2, verse 2. Does that not bring reassurance and consolation to us in our guilt? Whatever sin that you are struggling with, the blood of Christ stands as a continual and everlasting atonement that brings God's forgiveness to you. Consider that because of Christ's sacrifice and his intercession, we have been given favor with the Most High God to come boldly to the throne of grace, to request mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Whatever trial you are facing right now, whatever need that you have, Christ makes access for you to go to God and to make that request with confidence that he hears you and that he will answer according to his abundance. Isn't this amazing? You know, I had a friend who um, had applied for a job one time with a company and he knew somebody in the company. And this person that was in the company apparently was, was well-respected because they didn't really look at his resume. They didn't even do a very thorough interview process. But they essentially said, well, if, if you recommend him, then he must be a good fit for it and we'll hire him. So my friend was hired not based on his merits or his achievements, but because of another, because somebody else had favor. And we too are favored because of another, because of the work of Christ. And that illustration really does not do it justice, does it? Because my friend had a resume. He had a working background. They could have looked at that and hired him based on that. You and I, we don't have much of a resume for the Lord, do we? We have no righteousness of ourselves to boast before God. Everything that we have done only merits his displeasure. More than that, this, the relationship that we had with God was not one of being neutral, but of being hostile. We were ones who had committed treason against the king. And so the work that Christ does is not just to facilitate a, a job offer. The work that Christ does is to step in and change a, a relationship of enemies to one that gives us honor and favor and grace. Praise the Lord. Does that not encourage you in your weakness of faith, in your fight against sin? Does it not encourage you to pray? To pray for yourselves, to pray for your families, to pray for the church, to pray for Christ's work in this world, knowing that you have a Father who hears you because you have favor in that throne room. You have a Father who will answer from great abundance because He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who owns the heavens and the earth. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, this is just a small fragment of Christ's work. This is just scraps of food from the feast that is prepared at God's table. If we would look to Jesus and consider him and his work. So this Good Friday, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you 
first by asking, do your hearts desire to know Jesus Christ? If not, let's pray for that. But let's look to Jesus. Let's consider him the author and perfecter of our faith so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you take this small look at Christ and his work and would you make it like the loaves and fishes of a little boy? And would you multiply it that your people would be stirred up with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, with a thirst for God, for the living God, that we would live for your glory. We pray and ask it, Lord, because we know you hear us. We trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen.